This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, September 12th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, a look back at Blues and Brews 2001, Smart feels the seasonal transition and plots growth ahead, racers run the Imogene, and a mountain weather forecast. Over two decades ago, the terrorist attacks on 9-11 shook the world. For many, so much of life suddenly felt unstable and uncertain. In Telluride, the Blues and Brews Festival was preparing for their 8th annual celebration of beer and music when the Twin Towers fell on Tuesday. The festival was scheduled to begin that Friday. The organizers had to decide what to do. As the 21st anniversary of 9-11 and the 28th annual Blues and Brews Festival mark their anniversaries this week, Koto's Matt Hoish brings us this piece incorporating several interviews about that festival and archival recordings from the 2001 Blues and Brews. I was walking my girls out to the bus stop, and my neighbor said, did you hear what's going on? I'm like, no. I got up in the morning and turned on NPR like I do most mornings, and I could tell in Robert C. I think it was Robert Siegel's voice. My apartment had a view of the World Trade Center. My wife woke up. The phone was ringing. Our neighbor was calling saying, uh, look outside. And when I woke up, the first plane had already you know, At that point, we didn't really know what was going on. It was a plane crashed into the World Trade Center. I was watching TV when the second jet hit the South Tower, and I continued watching and watched both towers fall to the it ground. It was, to this day, the most surreal thing I, I've ever witnessed. up in the skies for three days. There were no planes, no private planes, no commercial planes, and it was eerily quiet. My name's Ashley Bowling, and along with Jeb Barrier, we have been the co-MCs of the Blues and Brews Festival for 20-some years. Uh, hey, I'm Warren Haynes. My name is Steve Gumble, and I'm the owner of SBG Productions and produce Telluride Blues and Brews Festival. So the first thing we had to do is see what we were going to do. Were we going to be able to, to produce a music festival? Did we want to produce a music festival? I was torn. Part of me said, no, shut it down. Let's not do it this year. Let's wait till next year. And part of me said, people need to be around other people. I started to think a little bit about the origin of blues and where it comes from and it's sort of about pain and suffering it was a form of healing for many and I thought well God there's not any more of a time than right now that we need to start a healing process people like Warren Haynes Taj Mahal we all talked to him and said you know we don't know what to do and they're like we're coming <laughs> we're coming regardless if you have sound on the stage we're coming because we need to play the airports were closed and by the time we realized we better find a tour bus to come pick me up and, and take me to Colorado, all the tour buses that could be there in time were unavailable. 
And so we found one bus, and it was in North Carolina. They said, if you can get to Allentown, Pennsylvania, we will pick you up in Allentown and get you to Colorado in time. The driver barely stopped. I remember the first moment that any of us laughed. X amount of time had gone by, I don't know, 10 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours, whatever it was. And then something happened that evoked laughter. And all three of us looked at each other like, wow, that's the first time any of us have laughed since since the event. in an almost visual kind of way, like you remember a dream or something. I can't tell you how happy I am to be here today. Kelly Hunt. We almost didn't make it, but by God, we got here at 8 o'clock this morning, and it's a good day to sing. Y'all ready? a magical weekend I've never seen Blues and Brews and the people that attended it sold out everyone came but there was a common denominator everyone was on the same page we were told we were the largest gathering in the United States there was a lot of hugging going on a lot of strangers were hugging each other and crying and um, we're happy to be alive put on your seatbelts and hang on tight we gonna go for a ride tonight I'm Taj Mahal was playing, and he came out on the stage, the crowd was cheering, and he grabbed the microphone before he sang a note, before he said anything, and said, people, are we together? Are we together? And the crowd erupted, and he said, we gotta be together. We gotta stay together. Taj Mahal. The blues was designed to get you over an incredible, incredible, you know, terrible situation of, I mean, if you can imagine having centuries of, of the knowledge of who you are, and then in, in, in a quick moment, you're not who you were anymore. Not only that, it's going to be 500 years before you can become conscious of anything. The blues was one of these wonderful things that allowed you to express that sadness, but to get you over that sadness, to get you to the next step. You know, everybody thought it was the idea was to bring you down in the 60s. They was driving me nuts. No, I didn't come here to bring you down. You know, I came here to get you over yourself. I want that bop, oop-oop-a-do. Headliner for Sunday night was James Brown. On Friday, people were asking backstage, is James Brown coming? And nobody knew. He and his band are on the East Coast, and it's a no-fly Saturday. Is James Brown coming? We don't know. People in the audience were screaming, asking Jeb and me, is James Brown coming? And we would look down and say, Lisa Jett to get James Brown from the East Coast, and he was one of the only people in the air flying. About 4 p.m., someone from Blues and Brews came back and said, hey, Jeb, Ashley, come here. It's official. They're airborne. James Brown will be playing tonight. Announce it to the crowd. We have a very important announcement to make. The Godfather has landed. 
I was backstage and maybe eight 15 passenger vans came kind of steaming up backstage. James Brown got out of one of the vans. Someone held up a mirror. He kind of checked his hair, walked out on stage. He didn't go in the dressing room and the band was there all set up. And I'm not going to say this lightly. One of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. Good evening. The James Brown Enterprises proudly present the James Brown Show. was one of the heaviest things I've ever experienced. You know, people finally getting back to live music being a, a real thing, you know, because you go through all the stages of, well, that's not important right now. But eventually we're reminded how much we need that. The connection between the band and the audience at that time was among the heaviest I've, I've ever experienced. I really think that Blues and Brews helped people deal with the bewilderment of not knowing what do we have to live for, what do we have to look forward to. We needed to be taken away from our TVs. We needed to, we needed to do something different. You know, nothing was changing. What had happened, it happened, and it was just sad. And it was a way for people to maybe not be sad for a few hours, and and that's exactly what it ended up being. That is probably my biggest takeaway, you know, how healing blues can be and music in general. I think of that often. It makes me feel like we did the right thing. Special thanks to G. Douglas Seitzinger, who produced the 2001 KOTO Blues and Brews broadcast, and Jennifer Thurston, who produced a 2002 retrospective of the festival, which provided all the archival interviews and performances for this piece. It must be September, because regional public transit buses are once again charging fares. Throughout the month of August, riders to Rico in the county's west end enjoyed free rides as part of the San Miguel Authority for Regional Transport's Zero Fare for Better Air initiative. At SMART's monthly meeting last week, Carrie DiStefano said the eco-minded promotion had little effect on ridership numbers. We, we couldn't actually see much of a difference between last year's August and this year's or last year in July and this year, but we didn't charge fares in August last year either. So uh, while it was up, our ridership was up, it couldn't be attributed to that. Nevertheless, we thank our friends at CDOT for providing us with, with um, a backfill to the fares we had lost during this period. Another sign of the changing season. DiStefano says that ridership is now rising, driven by students returning to school. School 
is a huge impact on our ridership. Most importantly, Rico is coming back strong, which I'm, I'm really happy about because that, that ridership had been since COVID a little tepid, but now we're, we're getting some big days and we've in fact had some mornings that had 10 people. So that's really good news. Similarly, DiStefano reports Norwood buses have recently filled with returning students. The, the ridership in Norwood is also very much impacted by the school. And that's something I think we really need to keep an eye on because we've had a couple of days where it's getting, it, it's exceeded 30 passengers. That's a 40 passenger bus. In other updates from Smart September meeting, the leadership is looking to expand its services into Ophir and out towards Montrose. Most immediately, however, SMART hopes to add a service connecting Lawson Hill to Mountain Village. They are debating whether to make that route stop in the meadows on its way to the village core. SMART Executive Director David Averill says that the route has been a long-term priority, but its details remain unclear. The question of going into the meadows, the more we talk about it, the less inclined I am to do it at this point. In an exciting update, Averill says that SMART has received $2.6 million in federal grant funding. The money will go to updating older vehicles and expanding SMART's fleet. We're going to keep pushing to expand the fleet until we bump into the 20% backup rule, uh, the, the, the spare ratio rule that FTA says, don't, you can't go beyond that. But we're nowhere near 20% for backup right now, but we're going to keep pushing towards that because it really, really makes a huge difference for us with reliability. Despite supply chain challenges, Averill says Smart will start to order and integrate those buses as soon as it can. Service from Lawson to Mountain Village should begin later this fall. It's a cold early morning in Telluride slightly gray and feeling a bit more like autumn than summer. Except for some high smoke from western fires, it's a fine day for a run. That's a good thing, because it's the Saturday after Labor Day. And for the last 49 years, this has meant one thing in Telluride, the Imogene Pass Run. In this mountain tradition, over a thousand race runners set out from Uray, Colorado at 7.30 in the morning. Before 10 o'clock, the first finishers are rounding the turn off Tomboy Road in Telluride and running the last few blocks of the 17-mile race right down Oak Street. Second place finisher Daniel Kraft ran it all in two hours and 24 minutes. Standing at the still quiet finish line, he says he was running hard till the very end. Yeah, it's great. Beautiful weather. I had a really tight finish at the end with Jimmy Parr, who's like a five-time champion. And he almost caught me. I had to run the last mile all out. Kraft has run the race twice beforehand when he used to live in Telluride. He says the run embodies the spirit and the energy of mountain communities. For me, I just love Telluride so much, so it was like an excuse to come back. And it's really fun to come into town over the past, too. But yeah, it's just an awesome community on both sides and has a lot of history. 
Racers came from around the U.S. and even traveled internationally. One top finisher was from Great Britain. Meanwhile, a crew of over 200 volunteers handed out water and high-energy snacks along the course. The crowd at the finish line, which grew throughout the morning, was full of Telluride residents, either waiting to greet a friend coming over the pass, or just to pause and recognize a storied tradition. The pass, peaking at 13,114 feet, makes for a grueling course. Roy Bowling, relaxing at the end of his run, says the elusive summit always seemed just a little further ahead. The hardest section on the way up is the last mile, because you're so close, but it's the steepest part, and it's just demoralizing for a while, watching the summit just never seem to get any closer. What was going through my head? On the uphill, it was like, I just got to make it to the summit. On the downhill, it was like, I just got to make it to the finish. (laughs) After the race, Becca Bramley, one of the top female finishers, is sitting on the sidewalk. She expresses a feeling of gratitude echoed by others. Honestly, just grateful that my body can do this and be out here today. Um, it was definitely struggling a little, but uh, it's cool that my body can be out here and doing this. She is sitting with her boyfriend, who had dropped her off in Ure that morning. While chasing the summit, Bramley admits she had her doubts. On the uphill, how I thought about turning around <laughs> and meeting him back in Ure. <laughs> I didn't really want to do it, but I did. <laughs> As the early hours passed into mid-morning and the sun began to beat down into the canyon, runners came pouring over the tomboy road towards Oak Street. Standing in the dust on the side of the track, spectators had gathered all along the last half mile to greet them. The Colorado Department of Education has released preliminary findings on how its school districts are doing. These public school check-ins are called performance frameworks. In a letter to the district, Telluride Superintendent John Pandolfo is pleased to report that Telluride received the highest performance rating. That puts the district in the top percent of Colorado schools. Because of the pandemic, Colorado has not run these frameworks for the last two years. This year's findings are just preliminary because nearly 40% of school districts could not be included. Data from test results, graduation rates, and other markers of school performance were not available in those districts because of pandemic interruptions. Pandolfo reports in his letter that he is nevertheless pleased with Telluride's success. While schools are in session, he and school board president Cheryl Miller will be at La Cucina de Luz one Friday morning each month for coffee, questions, and open conversation. That starts this week and takes place at 8.15 a.m. The cannabis industry and its fans have a reputation for being earth lovers. But despite its green image, legal marijuana has a massive waste problem. However, the industry's unique passion for the environment may motivate cannabis businesses to inspire changes in packaging norms well beyond the dispensary. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Hannah Lee Myers reports. Visit almost any dispensary, like the Starbuds in Louisville. 
and you'll end up standing in front of a massive assortment of multicolored containers. Edibles, joints, flour, vapes, and concentrates, all sold in uniquely designed packaging, made of all sorts of materials. Considering Colorado is predicted to sell around $1.8 billion of marijuana products this year, and that's a three-year low, the amount of these containers going out dispensary doors across the state is pretty staggering. There's a tremendous amount of waste in this industry. Tremendous amount. That's Bob Wadden, store director at the Louisville Starbuds. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, in 2019, the cannabis industry was producing around 7.3 million pounds of marijuana plant waste per year. The year before, Denver officials found cannabis grow operations accounted for 4% of the city's overall electricity use. But when Wadden says there is tremendous waste in the marijuana industry, he isn't even specifically referencing any part of that plant or energy waste. He's just talking about packaging. Packaging that, at least in Canada and possibly in the U.S., is outpacing the sale of actual cannabis products per gram. Just thinking about how many joints are sold in, in, in the state every day. You know, we're constantly buying these cases of 600 to 900 units of tubes. They're called dupe tubes. And it's a waste. It's a big waste in this industry. And where, where are those tubes going? We're not reusing them. There's got to be a better way. Wana Brands, based in Boulder, is likely the largest edibles manufacturer in North America. And they are trying to find a better way. We as Wana are, are dedicated to leaving this earth as best we can. Joe Hodis, chief marketing officer for Wana Brands, says one way they're doing that is with special packaging, designed by a company called Calyx Containers. According to the Calyx website, an organic additive that attracts microbes helps to accelerate the degradation of their containers in biologically active landfills. This is one of the newer products we just launched. It's our live rosin gummies. Um, but you can see on the bottom, calyxcontainers.com slash patents, please recycle. But ask recycling center leadership like Marty Mage, deputy director at EcoCycle in Boulder, about those accelerated degradation containers. Clearly, we have a, um, a vendor who is really trying to do the right thing. And you'll likely be met with a sigh of disappointment. Mage and other recyclers have serious concerns about containers like these and others they categorize as bioplastics. When you landfill them or if they become litter, biodegradable plastics will eventually quote-unquote biodegrade in that they will break down and seemingly go away and disappear, which might sound great, but now we've introduced an even greater polluting threat to the environment because while the plant-based polymers biodegraded and disappeared, the petroleum-based elements didn't biodegrade. They're still there and are now microscopic microplastics. Mage says humans can end up inhaling, consuming, or otherwise absorbing these microplastics. Calyx Containers distances their product from biodegradable plastics. The company claims their product breaks down into a biomass, not microplastics. However, EcoCycles Mage adds that plastic recyclers are often reluctant to repurpose biodegradable and any bioinfused plastics because they're designed to be less durable than traditional petroleum-based plastics. 
So then if we recycle biodegradable plastics, there is a concern that the Sustainable Product Coalition has and other plastic recyclers have that biodegradable plastics are purposely designed to be less durable than traditional petroleum-based plastics. So they have the potential to weaken the structural integrity of new recycled plastics. So while it sounds like a great idea, biodegradable plastics that use both plant-based and petroleum-based polymers really aren't better for the environment or for recycling. And in fact, they might be worse for both. Joe Hodis says Juana is trusting Calix to take on the heavy lift of staying in touch with what recycling experts suggest for eco-friendly containers. Juana is pretty busy keeping up with the massive amount of regulation in the cannabis industry. Regulation, Hodis says, is also a major contributor to the waste problem. Every time there's a change to regulation, Juana and every other manufacturer out there probably has a lot of packaging that's already been built And a lot of that ends up going to waste. And that's a real, real problem. So while marijuana companies try to comply with regulations requiring everything from child-safe seals to containers you can't see into, it seems cannabis companies may be unknowingly producing millions of pounds of packaging unsuitable for single-stream recycling. And that's where companies like Green for Green come in. We've captured roughly about 25 tons of plastic And that's like specifically plastic. Um, And then there's also glass, which weighs a lot more. Sean Naughton is founder of Green for Green, a company that puts receptacles in dispensaries where consumers can dump their various cannabis containers. The Green for Green team then sorts through those containers and determines what's trash, what's only suitable for repurposing into something else, and what can be reused. We created a proprietary process that removes the labels, then we clean them, sanitize them, rebox, and put back into the market. But Green for Green, EcoCycle, and Wanna Brands all seem to agree with something Bob Wadden from Starbuds Dispensary said earlier. There's got to be a better way. Two ideas come up again and again. Either creating a set of standardized, regulator-approved containers of various sizes designed for optimal recyclability, and or going for the zero-waste gold standard, reusable personal containers, likely made of glass, which is infinitely recyclable, that cannabis users can get refilled at the dispensary. Both ideas would require enormous effort from all parties to get approved, but there is unique interest within the cannabis industry to take on the challenge, considering the potential to initiate broader change in packaging norms within and outside the cannabis industry. Again, here's Marty Mache from EcoCycle. We here in Colorado could come up with a solution for the entire industry that others could follow suit, and we could create something that really could also set a great example for other industries and other packagers. And if we can work together with the cannabis industry to find a reuse refill model that we could then share elsewhere would be amazing. And I think there's tons of potential for us to do that. Confusion over what containers are best for the environment and the proper way to dispose of packaging is a problem that touches all industries, not just the cannabis industry. That confusion is felt at all levels. So maybe the message is this wild west of packaging, where every product is made out of who knows what, and recyclers scramble to take what they can, isn't working well for anyone, but certainly not the planet. And maybe the cannabis industry can lead the way to something better.
For KGNU, I'm Hanalee Myers. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for cloudy skies tonight with a low around 50. Tuesday sees a 90% chance of showers and thunderstorms and a high of 60 degrees. Rain and thunder will continue into Tuesday night with a low around 45. The forecast for Wednesday calls for continued showers and thunderstorms throughout the day and a high near 55. Showers continue into Wednesday night with a low around 45. This has been the news for Monday, September 12th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Good afternoon. My name is Julia Levine, and I am on Telluride's Ecology Commission, which is bringing you Telluride's annual Black Bear Awareness Week this week. In cooperation with the Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife, Wilkinson Public Library, Telluride Farmers Market, and the Wild Mountain Puppet Troop. For today's commentary, I have two black bear tidbits. Are you listening? You live in black bear country. Did you know? Ursa's Americanus, the American black bear, is threatened by accidents, disease, motor vehicles, and starvation. Natural enemies include other bears and mountain lions. Humans are responsible for the deaths of most black bears by taking over their habitat, feeding them garbage, illegally hunting them, and destroying them when they harm people or livestock and other property. Our second tidbit is that black bears are terrific tree climbers. Trim back all tree limbs within 10 feet of your upper story decks and windows. This helps protect against wildfires too. Bears have learned to climb trees that overhang roofs, jump onto the roof, and dangle over the edge to open a window. For more information on black bear biology and ways to live safely in black bear country, please contact the Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife at their website. You can also visit the special black bear awareness booth at the farmer's market this Friday. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.